the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back, May 28th, 2021. Slightly different monologue for you today, as we have it in the American Patriots Almanac. The last Monday of May is the day we honor Americans who gave their lives in military service. The holiday was originally called Decoration Day and honored soldiers who had died during the Civil War. Immediately after the war, various towns in the north and south began to set aside days to decorate soldiers' graves with flowers and flags. Those earliest memorial observances occurred in Waterloo, New York, Columbus, Mississippi, Richmond, Virginia, Illinois, Pennsylvania, and other places, several other places. The first widespread observation of Decoration Day came in on May 30th, 1868, where Major General John A. Logan proclaimed a it as a day to honor the dead. General James Garfield, later the 20th U.S. president, gave a speech at Arlington National Cemetery in remembrance of fallen soldiers, saying that, quote, for love of country, they accepted death and thus resolved all doubts and made immortal their patriotism and their virtue, close quote. Afterward, 5,000 people helped decorate the graves of more than 20,000 Union and Confederate soldiers. Over the years, the day became an occasion to remember the dead in all American wars and came to be known as Memorial Day. Just before the holiday, a tradition known as Flags Inn takes place. The soldiers of the 3rd U.S. Infantry place small flags before more than a quarter million gravestones at Arlington National Cemetery. They then patrol 24 hours a day to make sure each flag remains standing throughout the weekend. On Memorial Day, the president or vice president lays a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier in the cemetery. According to the U.S. flag code, American flags should be flown at half-staff until noon on Memorial Day, then raised to the top of the pole. At 3 p.m. local time, all Americans are asked to pause for a moment of remembrance. Quote, the sight before us is that of a strong and good nation that stands in silence and remembers those who were loved and who in return loved their countrymen enough to die for them. President Ronald Reagan said on May 31st, 1982, after laying a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier in an annual Memorial Day ceremony back then. The tomb of the unknown soldier stands on a hill overlooking Washington, D.C. and Arlington National. One of the most solemn monuments in our country, it honors all of the U.S. soldiers whose remains have never been identified. Beneath the eight-foot-tall white marble tomb lies the body of an unknown soldier from World War I, placed there in 1921, and inscribed on the tomb are the words, Here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. The tombs of unknown soldiers from World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War live, uh, excuse me, lie nearby. The remains of the Vietnam unknown 
were identified by DNA testing in 1998. So they were removed, and that tomb is now empty. Members of the 3rd U.S. Infantry guard the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Now, all of this puts me in natural mind of what Ronald Reagan spoke about at Arlington National Cemetery in 1986. Talking of those buried there, he said, They loved America very much. There was nothing they wouldn't do for her. And they loved with the sureness of the young. It's hard not to think of the young in a place like this, for it's the young who do the fighting and dying when a peace fails and a war begins. Not far from here is the statue of three servicemen, the three fighting boys of Vietnam. It, too, has majesty and more. Perhaps you've seen it. Three rough boys walking together, looking ahead with a steady gaze. There's something wounded about them, a kind of resigned toughness. But there's an unexpected tenderness, too. At first you don't really notice, but then you see it. The three are touching each other, as if they're supporting each other, helping each other on. I know that many veterans of Vietnam will gather today, some of them perhaps by the wall. And they're still helping each other on. They were quite a group, the boys of Vietnam, boys who fought a terrible and vicious war without enough support from home. Boys who were dodging bullets while we debated the efficacy of the battle. It was often our poor who fought in that war. It was the unpampered boys of the working class who picked up the rifles and went on the march. They learned not to rely on us. They learned to rely on each other. And they were special in another way. They chose to be faithful. They chose to reject the fashionable skepticism of their time. They chose to believe and answer the call of duty. They had the wild, wild courage of youth. They seized certainty from the heart of an ambivalent age, and they stood for something. And we owe them something, those boys. We owe them, first, a promise that just as they did not forget their missing comrades, neither ever will we. And there are other promises. We must always remember that peace is a fragile thing that needs constant vigilance. We owe them a promise to look at the world with a steady gaze and perhaps a resigned toughness, knowing that we have adversaries in the world and challenges, and the only way to meet them and maintain the peace is by staying strong. That, of course, is the lesson of this century, a lesson learned in the Sudetenland, in Poland, in Hungary, in Czechoslovakia, in Cambodia. If we really care about peace, we must stay strong. If we really care about peace, we must, through our strength, demonstrate our unwillingness to accept an ending of the peace. We must be strong enough to create peace where it does not exist and strong enough to protect it where it does. That's the lesson of this century and, I think, of this day. And that's all I wanted to say. The rest of my contribution is to leave this great place to its peace, a peace it has earned, close quote. He gave an equally great speech on Memorial Day in 1982, saying, In America's cities and towns today, flags will be placed on graves and cemeteries. Public officials will speak of the sacrifice and the valor of those whose memory we honor. I have no illusions about what little I can add now to the silent testimony of those who gave their lives willingly for their country. Words are even more feeble on this Memorial Day, for the sight before us is that of a strong and good nation that stands in silence and remembers those who loved them and who in return loved their countrymen enough to die for them. 
Yet we must try to honor them for not their sake, but our own. And if words cannot repay the debt we owe these men, surely with our actions we must strive to keep faith with them and with the vision that led them to battle and to final sacrifice. Our first obligation to them and ourselves is plain enough. The United States and the freedom for which it stands, the freedom for which they died, must endure and prosper. Their lives remind us that freedom is not bought cheaply. It has a cost. It imposes a burden. And just as they whom we commemorate were willing to sacrifice, so too must we, in a less final, less heroic way, be willing to give of ourselves. Each died for a cause he considered more important than his own life. Well, they didn't volunteer to die. They volunteered to defend values for which men have always been willing to die, if needs be, the values which make up what we call civilization. And how they must have wished in all the ugliness that war brings that no other generation of young men to follow would have to undergo the same experience. As we honor their memory today, let us pledge that their lives, their sacrifices, their valor shall be justified and remembered for as long as God gives life to this nation. And let us also pledge to do our utmost to carry out what must have been their wish that no other generation of young men will ever have to share their experiences and repeat their sacrifice. Earlier today, with the music that we have heard and that of our national anthem, I can't claim to know the words of all the national anthems in the world, but I don't know of any other that ends with a question and a challenge, as does ours. Does that flag still wave over the land of the free? In the home of the brave? That is what we must all ask, too. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Open lines Friday. Anything on your mind today? And Especially for Memorial Day, uh, if you know someone who has fallen in the service to this country, I would um, love to hear their story. This is uh, the weekend we remember them. I caught myself today when I was wishing someone a good Memorial Day weekend. I don't think good is the right one. I think you want to say something like um, meaningful. You want to have a meaningful Memorial Day weekend. Uh, yes, hopefully with uh, family, friends, hopefully uh, with old acquaintances, uh, uh, not long, uh, not too long forgot, let's hope, but uh, for a meaningful purpose for those who gave their, as Lincoln said, last full measure of devotion. So anyone who wants to share a story about someone who fell in uh, battle uh, for this country, we're here for that. 602 It's not Veterans Day. Veterans Day is a day I would talk about someone like my dad, a veteran of World War II, who did not die in battle. Veterans Day honors those who fought. Memorial Day honors those who fought and fell fighting or in the line of fighting. 602-508-0960. We'll do some other stuff, too. I, um, we have a lot to do, actually. Uh, speaking of, uh, speaking of uh, wars... This is a um, this is something I I, I I knew was coming, and um, here it is. 
and it might go away after this weekend. Thank goodness the Senate defeated the January 6th investigation commission that the House had passed. Uh, they needed uh, to get uh, another 10 votes to get past uh, – to get to cloture, past filibuster, so to speak, and they failed. Though they did peel off some Republicans, some Republicans who supported the Democrats here in wanting to turn January 6th into something like a Reichstag, uh, those uh, senators, Republicans, six Republicans who um, – Joined uh, the Democrats are Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, Bill Cassidy, Rob Portman, Lisa Murkowski, and Ben Sass. The six that you would normally think of. I'm not sure what's happened to Bill Cassidy. He seems to me to have been, or Rob Portman, both of those people seem to have been much more sober up until about six months ago. But in any event, um, it's uh, not ripe just yet, but boy, I, I... I want I want clarity in the Republican Party, too. Agreement is one thing, but clarity uh, first to get to a, an agreement so we can have a unified field theory of what it means to be a Republican, what it means to be a conservative. I've long threatened to threatened. I've long thought about writing, wanting to write a book, what it means to be a Republican. There's a lot of what it means to be a conservative. And uh, I even authored, co-authored a book on that, um, America called American Greatness. But it's an interesting thing. No one seems to want to write what it means to be a Republican for a couple of reasons, I think. You tell me if I'm wrong. I've never asked an, an expert, another expert. First reason is that there is a built-in prejudice in our movement where we believe rightfully so that the Republican Party is the conservative movement's cross to carry, um, that it is uh, not itself uh, f- uh, chock full or um, present with um, coherent uh, philosophy and ideology, but rather a vehicle of many parts, which is the best political vehicle to put into practice or praxis the theory of or within the theories within conservatism. That's one. There's this prejudice. Um, You hear it often enough when people say, well, I'm not a Republican, I'm a conservative. You hear that sort of thing. But the other one, harder to get your arms around, and I think actually in some respects the bigger reason you don't have books, what is Republican, why I'm a Republican, as opposed to what is a conservative or what conservatism means. It's a bigger thing, which is there's this sort of expected built-in anticipatory dissidence within the party. We all kind of join the party knowing that there's going to be a wide swath of beliefs in it. There are going to be Republicans who we call moderate Republicans. There are going to be Republicans others might call rhinos. But for whatever reason they choose to affiliate with the Republican Party, there are Republicans who maddeningly will say, well, I'm a social liberal but an economic conservative. Um, You never really hear the other 
way around, interestingly enough, although once upon a time in certain Catholic circles you did. I'm a social conservative but an economic liberal. You used to hear that in Catholic elements in, the, in, 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 um, in, liber, in liberal parts of America or precincts of the Democratic Party. That's gone. That's gone. There is no more social conservatism within liberalism or the left in America these days. But there's this almost expected the Republican Party is a weaker thing, if you will. It's smaller beer or weaker tea than the conservative movement. And I ask why we think that. Why, why, why should we assume that Republican is weaker than conservative, especially when one is um, an on-the-ground thing you can register for and has its own chairman and headquarters and election um, operations and budgets beyond anything in the conservative think tank world. Why is the Republican Party considered the weaker thing, the weaker T compared to the conservative movement? The less pure, perhaps, uh, is a way to think of it. And I don't know is the answer because in the conservative movement, we too are well familiar with dissidents. If you go to CPAC, I guarantee you, you will disagree with at least half of the membership on everything you believe in politically. If you go to any conservative organizational meeting of any kind, you're going to realize, wait, there are different kinds of conservative. There are Burkean conservatives and there are Kirk, Russell Kirkian traditionalist conservatives. There are um, uh, once upon a time before foreign policy, there was a, a vibrant neoconservative movement on domestic policy in America. There are libertarians who compl- co- who will claim to be conservatives. Um, there are um, economic conservatives, fiscal conservatives. Uh, there's all kinds. Um, so why do we think the Republican Party is any less – Uh, any less serious than the conservative movement or any less unified. Indeed, if you look at the platform, original platform of the Republican Party, it's pretty serious stuff, chock full of references to the Declaration of Independence, condemnatory of polygamy and slavery, giving, I think, credence to the view that this was always the party of family values and social conservatism not social libertarianism. Anyway, just a thought I was exploring in my own head. If you have thoughts, welcome to share them at 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. My friends at Trades Unlimited are here for all your roofing needs and right now want me to tell you about foam roofs, which help insulate from the extreme Arizona heat, but also insulate your home from exterior noises and, most importantly, from water leaks. I've gotten to meet the people at Trades Unlimited. I've been down to their offices and warehouse. They are just great people, totally impressive, great work ethic. That's why they have an A-plus rating at the BBB and why I can guarantee you that quality and service is what you'll come to know with Trades Unlimited. The hot summer sun is perfect for foam recoats. Protect your roof before the foam beneath the coating gets compromised. Don't wait until it's too late. Call my friends over at Trades Unlimited 
480-483-1775. That's 480-483-1775. Or find them online at tradesunlimited.com. Mike is in Maricopa. Hi, Mike. Yes, good afternoon, Seth. I you asking for people with stories. Yes, now, please. I have a friend of mine, and uh, he did not fall on the battlefield, but he was one of those that we hear about, the 21 that commit suicide afterwards. So mm-hmm. maybe we could say that he died on the battlefield of the mind. Understood. And I'll try not to... Uh, my friend's name was Sergeant Felix Rosales. A little bit of backstory. Felix is a little older than I was. He was in the Vietnam War. He was in the Marine Corps, Force Recon. We met up in Desert Storm in the 18th Airborne Corps. And there was a lot of Scud missiles flying around, as you recall, I because do. of the past, the, the Saddam. We didn't know what was going to be on the warhead of the next one, and there was always a lot of the scuttlebutt and the rumor mill and everything. And we had sought out some counsel from Felix because he had already been through the hopper once. And he sat some of us down. I was I was in my 30s, so it wasn't like I was still wet behind the ear, but I can tell you what, those things can really uh, put the hook in you. Sure. And he talked about what he referred to as the fear of the unknown. And he explained to us that we had the training, we had our protective mask, we had all our kit and our injectors and everything like that, and we know how to do it, we've been trained on it, and if it does, then we're going to act like soldiers, and we're not going to sit here and live in fear of this fear weapon. We moved on up into Iraq, and in the early morning, somebody came up and said that there was this uh, Iraqi lady outside, they had her in a civilian vehicle. Her leg had been sprayed with shrapnel and also in her uh, abdomen. And as I was treating her as the team medic there, and I saw Felix walking along. He was kind of standing off in the distance, and then his legs got really wobbly. And he fell down on his knees and held his head and shook his head back and forth. And I asked somebody to go help him. And everything was fine. We got back. Everything was okay, but something happened. Felix just couldn't make the jump, and he put a rifle in his mouth and pulled mm, the trigger. No, gosh. Oh, my gosh. Goodness gracious. Goodness Sergeant gracious. Fe- wow. Sergeant Felix Rosales, and I know you don't usually do it, but I do have a request. It's by Billy Ray Cyrus, and the name of the song is Some Gave All. Yeah, we can do that. I'd appreciate that, Seth. God bless you. Yeah, we can do that. Bill, we can probably go out with that, can't we, in this segment? Some gave all? I think we can. I think we can do that. We'll do that for the memory of Felix. Sure. We can do that. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Here are two things more to touch the soul, and there are tears for passing things. And um, as you will hear from some of the audio we have put together for you later in the show today, um, for some of the wars... That are over are never over. Let's let Billy Ray do it.
Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, this open line Friday. Anything on your mind, happy to uh, talk about, happy to tell you about. Just uh, no medical, legal, or accounting advice. 602-508-0960. Let me just read this directly out of the New York Post. The embattled co-founder of Black Lives Matter announced on Thursday, yesterday, that she's resigning as executive director amid criticism over her lavish lifestyle. Patrice Coulors, 37, this is one of the women who says we were trained in Marxism, trained Marxists. Patrice Coulors, 37, who has been at the helm of the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation for nearly six years, said she is leaving to focus on a book and TV deal. I've created the infrastructure and the support and the necessary bones and foundations so that I can leave, Coulors said. It feels like the time is right. But her resignation comes amid controversy over the group's finances and Coulors's personal wealth, including an alleged real estate buying spree in which she snagged four high-end homes, costing millions in the United States, and... Her response is, this has nothing to do with right-wing attacks that tried to discredit my character. It's not a right-wing attack. It's not a right-wing attack. The BLM Foundation revealed in February, three months ago, that it took in just over $90 million last year following the death of George Floyd. This foundation said it ended 2020 with a balance of more than $60 million after spending nearly a quarter of its assets on operating expenses. Critics of the foundation contend more of that money should have gone to the families of black victims of police brutality. Others are wondering how you have a Marxist revolutionary movement dedicated to helping the underrepresented and underprivileged that ends up with $60 million cash on hand at the end of the year while the founder of the organization has four homes and, and a professorship. By the way, what do you think she'll get paid for that book and movie and TV deal? Oh, she'll get paid more than the collective worth of her homes. I'll tell you that right now. I'll tell you that right now. She'll be paid more than the millions her homes are worth combined for that book and television deal. Uh, But she also has a faculty appointment right here in Arizona. Did you know that? Did you know we had trained Marxists teaching in our colleges here in Arizona? She 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 has a faculty appointment at Prescott College. Patrice Coulors does. She's a member of the Faculty of Social Environmental Arts Practice. Social Environmental Arts Practice. We've come to a point where you can just throw words together. You've heard the phrase word salad. Who knew they would we get what we get what a word salad is when it's when it's a politician's or a corporation's incomprehensible response to something, just going into their grab bag of approved words 
and seeing if they'll form a predicate and a subject with the right verb tense. That's what a word salad is, just throwing a bunch of words against a wall and seeing if they'll if they'll stick like so many monkeys trying to produce Shakespeare. You get this now in academia with titles. Associate Faculty of Social Environmental Arts Practice. Social Environmental Arts Practice. I know what each of the words means individually. Social has to do with working with people. Environmental has to do with our surroundings. Arts, I think we all know what arts are, and practice. It's a degree and a department about nothing. Dare I say it? Social environmental arts practice. If an artist wants to be an artist and an activist, be an artist and an activist. I don't know that you need to go to Prescott College to learn how to do that, although maybe you do. And maybe you do because they figured out a way how to add the environment into arts practice as well. So I'm guessing you're elevating people, saving the environment through art. And the word practice is just something you throw on there so you can have an elaborate demonstration of the menial. That's, that's how this works, I'm guessing. Don't know her salary. Don't gather she'll be leaving Prescott College as she's left Black Lives Matter. But that's pretty good work for a Marxist group. That's pretty good work to raise $90 million and have 60 left over. If you're a poor victim, if you're a victim, I, I, poor victim is, is a weird way to put it because of the um, implications of poor. So let me define it better. If you're a victim of a government violation or infringement of your rights and you are underprivileged, that's what I meant by poor. If you are economically on the lower strata and you thought – that a Marxist movement cared about your class. And if you thought that a Marxist movement that was called Black Lives Matter was dedicated to improving your life if you happen to be an African-American, um, are you happy with the fact that BLM raised $90 million, $60 million of which is still sitting in their bank account? And the founder of the organization has four homes. Are you happy with that? What could $60 million do in a neighborhood as far as a health care clinic might go? What could $60 million do for creating a new charter school with amenities that care for the children who don't have parents. What could $60 million do for a lot of lives that don't really require the self-flagellation of the Mitt Romneys of the world to march under that banner and have the mayors of our country rename streets in their honor? My gosh, you can make $60 million and get mayors to name streets after you without paying them a cent. It's a pretty 
good shakedown BLM has created for itself. The weird thing is not enough people will recognize what a fraud it is and that you can take a good name and make a bad thing of it, just as so many of us conservatives were trying to tell you in the first place. Open lines Friday, 602-508-0960. Anything on your mind you want to talk about? We are here for you for that. Anything you want to ask me, go right ahead. Just not medical or legal or accounting. Bill, we started on uh, updating our list yesterday on the greatest lies of the 20 and 21st century. And you said you were adding a couple of lies to our list. Um, What was the one you added yesterday? It was called They Know Something We Don't. Right, right. They Know Something We Don't. It's a lie. Uh, when, when, when a politician says something, uh, sometimes they're just saying something. And just because they may have a security clearance because they're on the Intelligence Committee, it doesn't mean they know something uh, that we do not. If you doubt that, I give you Adam Schiff, who promised and promised and promised and promised for two and three years. He of the Intelligence Committee, where he is given grant to classified intelligence, said he had a smoking gun. Nancy Pelosi said she would not commence impeachment hearings until they had enough evidence. Then she commenced them and the evidence had never changed. They don't know something we don't. Not usually. Not usually. At least not when it's against our interests. They typically don't. Um, And this would go for January 6th, too. And I want to spend some time on that and what transpired today in the next segment. Uh, or in the next hour as well. Okay, so uh, what was the cause of you saying that, though? Those weren't They weren't my examples. What were your examples? It was when New York City Mayor Bill de right. Blasio right. came out so unequivocally right. saying right. that Governor Cuomo should resign. I'm glad you brought that up because I meant to say something about that yesterday. Uh, Joe Biden was with the uh, governor of Virginia today, and uh, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, He called on the governor of Virginia to resign. He of blackface KKK medical school uh, portraiture. Today he's with him. This whole thing just went away. Do you remember how many people called on Cuomo to resign? It wasn't just Bill de Blasio. It was his senior – it was both senators. It was Gillibrand and Schumer. It was a lot of people were asking on Cuomo, where did that go? Is this the new strategy? Just yeah. wait it out, yeah. dig in your heels? I'm not moving. Yeah, we'll be on a new lily pad in time. Just wait. You can wait this out. It's called circling the wagons. Yeah, Schumer will say it and Gillibrand will say it. And we'll just sit here in Albany and twiddle our thumbs while my uh, while my brother takes a little bit of heat for helping out. But, you know, not even really a slap on the wrists. We, 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 we Cuomo's know how to play this game to a fairly well, and they have. They have. But so is Northup, and so is the entire Democratic Party. And the joke's on us. 